0: Thank you for tuning in to Nareit's The REIT Report. My name is Natalie Carey, and I am the Senior Vice President of Industry Affairs and Social Responsibility with Nareit, the trade association representing real estate investment trusts, or REIT. My guest today is Richard Rothstein, a Distinguished Fellow of the Economic Policy Institute and a Senior Fellow Emeritus at the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. He is the author of The Color of Law, a forgotten history of how our government segregated America, which recovers a forgotten history of how federal, state, and local policy explicitly segregated metropolitan areas nationwide, creating racially homogenous neighborhoods in patterns that violate the Constitution and require remediation. He is also the author of many other articles and books on race and education. Richard it is a pleasure to have you join me today in what promises to be an immensely interesting conversation how are you doing
1: fine thank you and thank you very much
0: great well we are so interested in hearing what you have to say so (coughs) let's jump right in so you write That de facto segregation in real estate, which resulted from actions of private agents like realtors and, and mortgage lenders, would not have developed to the extent that it did without de jure segregation or laws and government policies that imposed racial segregation. What were these laws and policies and what types of broader effects did they have in real estate markets and in black communities?
1: Well, there were many, many uh, racially explicit policies of the federal, state, and local governments that imposed segregation on this country in a way that um, was so powerful that it still determines the racial landscape of today. Um, I can give you uh, many, many examples. Let me give you the most uh, powerful one, one of the more powerful ones at least, and that is in the uh, post-World War II period millions of returning war veterans were coming home needing housing at the time we were a a society that was mostly urban working class and middle class families both black and white were living in urban areas that were much more integrated than the ones we know today simply because we were a manufacturing economy and uh, workers of um, both black and white had to live close enough to their workplaces to get to work and manufacturing plants had to be located near deep water ports or railroad terminals to get their parts and ship their final products. But the federal government in the post-World War II period when uh, returning war veterans were coming home, embarked on a program to suburbanize the entire white population Uh, working-class population into single-family homes in all white suburbs. This was a racially explicit federal policy. Uh, And it's not to say that the developers, the realtors, uh, the insurance companies that created these suburbs weren't bigoted. Of course they were. But their um, discriminatory policies could not have had any effect were it not for government requirement. So perhaps the best-known example of these, it's one I devote some time to in the color of law, is Levittown, east of New York City. 17,000 homes in one place at a time when suburbs were rare. Uh, William Levitt was a bigot, the the developer who built Levittown. Uh, Left to his own devices, he would not have sold to an African American, he boasted of that fact. But does that make uh, the segregation of Levittown a private activity? Absolutely not. Levitt couldn't get a bank to lend them money to build Levittown, to build 17,000 homes in one place. Uh, No bank would be crazy enough to do it. We were uh, not a suburban country at that time. The banks thought that this was a crazy idea. The only way that Levitt could uh, build this project was by going to the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration. Uh, creating um, his plans for the development and submitting them to these government agencies, the materials he was going to use, the architectural design, the layout of the streets, and a federally required commitment that he never sell a home to an African American. Uh, His private bigotry was irrelevant. Had the federal government agreed to guarantee his bank loans, on condition that he sell in a non-discriminatory fashion, which is what the federal government was required to do under the Fifth Amendment to our Constitution that requires a due process to all American citizens. Um, Had had the government imposed that rule that they were obligated to do, bigot or not, Levitt would have had to sell on a non-discriminatory basis. So his private bigotry was irrelevant. Uh, What was relevant was the government requirement that in order to guarantee his bank loans, he had to refuse to sell to African Americans and further the Federal Housing Administration and Veterans Administration require that he place a clause in the deed of every home prohibiting resale to African Americans or rental to African Americans. This was not the action of rogue bureaucrats working um, in federal agencies, this was a written policy of the Federal Housing Administration. The Federal Housing Administration uh, issued an underwriting manual to appraisers all over the country whose job it was to evaluate the application of builders, developers like Levitt for uh, subsidies to create these projects. The underwriting manual said you couldn't recommend for a federal bank guarantee uh, an application of a developer who was going to sell to African-Americans in a white neighborhood. The manual went so far as to say you couldn't even uh, issue a bank guarantee to a uh, an all-white development to a developer of an all-white development if it was going to be located near where African Americans were living, because what the manual uh, said, and I'm quoting, is that that kind of a guarantee would run the risk of infiltration by inharmonious racial groups. That's what the federal policy manual said in my book. Uh, The color of law, I have a photograph of a six-foot-high, half-mile-long concrete wall that a uh, developer of a white subdivision in Detroit was required by the FHA to construct in order to separate his project from a nearby uh, African-American neighborhood. So this is not uh, de facto segregation. This is a racially explicit government policy designed to ensure that African Americans and whites could not live near one another in any metropolitan area of the country, and this is just one of many, many policies racially explicit that the federal state, and local governments followed uh, in wow. order to and, create and the segregation we know today yeah.
0: this and I, I want to just spend a little bit of time on this concept of the de facto segregation. And why you you write that it limits our ability to seek remedy from the governmental entity or the state-sponsored, uh, you know, the state sponsors of these kinds of policies. Why is that an important part that limits our ability to seek, uh, to, to remedy these situations?
1: It's a critical aspect of it. So long as we believe that, um, Racial segregation in this country, residential segregation in this country happened naturally, happened by accident, happened because of private bigotry of um, homeowners or landlords who wouldn't sell to African-Americans in white neighborhoods or um, banks or or, or real estate agencies or developers who who, uh, discriminated. As long as people believe that it happened naturally or at least without government participation, It's not a constitutional violation and the constitution prohibits the government from taking explicit action to fix it. Uh, It would have to uh, implement race conscious policies which are not permissible under the constitutional theories under which we operate, uh, not permissible unless they're designed to remedy explicit racial policies uh, that um, created the constitutional violation. So understanding that we have not a de facto system of racial segregation, but an unconstitutionally created government-sponsored system of racial segregation is essential. Once we understand that, then it follows that as American citizens, we are obligated, obligated, not just have the opportunity to, but obligated to take remedial action, to redress segregation, with affirmative action policies in housing and and other race-conscious policies designed to undo the effects of these unconstitutional practices. So whether we believe it happened by accident or whether we understand that it happened uh, as a result of public policy is a critical distinction. The first prohibits us from doing much about it to fix it. The second requires us to do something to fix it.
0: Very, you know, interesting, and you know, one of the things that comes to mind um, as you you walk through this, and I'd really love your thoughts on this. What what were there, or, or were there, unintended consequences of government-sponsored segregation? And and one of the things that I am interested in is that did it hurt white people at all?
1: Well, it certainly does hurt white people. Um, we have one of the consequences of the segregation that we've created is that we have a and this is something that I'm sure we're all aware of now we have a politically polarized society that is um, incomparable to anything we've ever had in the past uh, the political polarization uh, isn't entirely racial but it largely tracks racial lines and it's impossible to conceive of how we can ever develop the common national identity that preserves to preserve this democracy if so many African-Americans and whites live so far from each other and have such different life experiences that they can't understand each other, can't empathize with each other. How can we develop a common national identity uh, under those circumstances? Now the result of this political polarization is that whites suffer enormously as well. We have uh, a less adequate health care system than other industrialized countries, uh, we have uh, less adequate income supports for working-class, white working-class families than other industrialized countries, uh, less job security, poorer pensions, all of this because of the political polarization that is in least in large part uh, a consequence of blacks and whites living so far apart from each other and in such different The circumstances.
0: That is extremely, extremely uh, interesting. I I wanted to just shift a little bit to talk about our particular industry, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this as well. We represent uh, real estate investment trusts, and our members have very different businesses within the commercial real estate sector. Their businesses own income-producing properties including more traditional types of real estate like office buildings, shopping malls, and apartments, as well as newer types of properties like data centers, cell towers, and logistics facilities used to transport goods bought on the internet. Most commercial real estate in America is privately held, and many of the publicly traded companies were once family-owned businesses. We have struggled to diversify as a sector and we're now contemplating how we can attract and retain and promote uh, black people, uh, you know and other minorities in addition to increasing access to our industry's capital. Can you bridge the gap for our listeners between the housing issue that we're discussing and maybe the lack of accessibility um, uh, you know into our industry, for black people?
1: The segregation that we created in this country, the residential segregation that we created, took place in two ways. One was the refusal uh, of uh, government to permit access of African-Americans to high opportunity communities. That's what we discussed a while ago. The other is um, the refusal of banks and realtors uh, and uh, the Federal Housing Administration to, uh, extend uh, a traditional conventional uh, mortgage opportunities to african-americans in low-income communities what are typically called redlined communities uh, communities where the federal government typically would not insure mortgages there were exceptions but for the most part would not do so the result was that uh, those communities became impoverished they uh Contract sales became commonplace. speculators would uh, pretend to sell homes to African-Americans. They weren't really selling them. They were uh, selling them on the the installment plan. It's no different from renting uh, to own. And uh, if uh, a family missed a single payment, they could be evicted with no equity. African-Americans, as a result, were paying much more for housing than whites were paying for similar housing, identical housing quality in uh, other in white neighborhoods african americans became poorer and poorer and um, they had to subdivide their homes uh, in order to uh, get rental payments to help them uh, cover their mortgages even where whites uh, with similar homes would have uh, much less of a housing expense Uh, they doubled and tripled up with relatives they began to use living rooms as uh, bedrooms and that forced um, social life out into the streets uh, cities uh, refused to um, uh, extend public services to the same extent in these communities they did in other words others, others uh, less frequent garbage collection uh, fewer street lights uh, fewer paved sidewalks well these communities became slums uh, they concentrated disadvantage and one of the consequences of this consequence of this concentrated disadvantage was um depressed achievement of African-American children in schools. Uh, I spent a lot of years as an education policy writer uh, before I got engaged in in writing about this topic. Uh, As an education policy writer, I tried to explain why African-Americans in these neighborhoods achieved at lower level than white students in middle-class neighborhoods and it had very little to do with the quality of their schools which is what most people attribute it to It had to do with the social and economic conditions that develop in these segregated neighborhoods. So, for example, I remember writing one column uh, some years about asthma. Uh, African-American children, as you may know, have asthma at four times the rate of middle-class children. It's amazing difference, four times the rate. And they have asthma at such a high rate because they live in more polluted neighborhoods, more uh, polluting industries present, more trucks driving through more dilapidated buildings, more vermin in the environment, all of these are asthma-producing environmental conditions. If a child has asthma, that child is more likely than a child without that condition to be up at night wheezing and then coming to school drowsy the next day. Now, a drowsy child is not going to achieve at the same level as an equally able child who comes to school well-rested. It doesn't make a big difference. But then you begin to think of all of the social and economic conditions that segregation imposes on black children that reduces their achievement the um, asthma lead poisoning that has a measurable impact on i q uh, homelessness economic insecurity all of these add up to explain the achievement gap between black and white children well. Um, African-American children have lower educational attainment than white children as a result of these segregated conditions, not to mention the additional uh, uh, consequences of uh, lack of uh, wealth creation from not owning homes that appreciated in value with conventional mortgages. So their educational attainment is lower.
0: That's an interesting, you know, an interesting concept, too. And one of the other things that I wanted to kind of to to see if you would think that this is actually you can project out. I mean, I would assume that the same, you know, racist policies that were taking place. Um, for single-family homes and home ownerships, it was probably equal, if not worse, for business and and you know African Americans who were trying to open or to start businesses that these weren't you know um, really uh, uh, opportunities that would have been afforded to them either. As in addition to that.
1: Oh, you're absolutely right. Yes, yeah.
0: So let's let's. I'm really interested in understanding are there any and I like to call it ghosts of policies past or newer policies that continue the state sponsored oppression of black people in housing in America?
1: Yes, uh it's an interesting term. I think I'll I'll borrow it from you. you <laughs> ghosts of policies so. past? Yeah. Well, the biggest one is one we've already sort of talked about and that is these, the suburbanization of the white population and the prohibition of African Americans from participating in this suburbanization by the federal government. The homes and these uh, subdivisions that were created in the post-World War II period in every metropolitan area in the country were inexpensive at the time. They were working-class homes. They sold typically for, you know, eight, 000, nine thousand dollars in Levittown. Uh, they were eight thousand dollars when they were built in today's money that's about $100,000 uh, the um, those homes no longer sell for $100,000 in any metropolitan area of this country uh, any suburb they sell for three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. 500 thousand uh, dollars sometimes a million dollars or more uh, I can um, send you a link to an article that I, where I, that I recently wrote that describing one of these communities and the appreciation and value and how it was created on a segregated basis initially. Uh, Well, the white families who were subsidized by the federal government to buy these homes gained wealth as a result of um, uh, this opportunity. African-Americans were prohibited from participating in this wealth generating exercise. The result is that today, today African-American incomes on average are about 60%, 60% of white family incomes. There's a story behind that, too. We don't have time to discuss that today. But uh, while African-American incomes are 60% on average of white incomes, African-American wealth is only 5% of white wealth. And that enormous disparity between a 60% income ratio and a 5% wealth ratio is the ghost of those policies past, as you put it it's entirely attributable to the unconstitutional federal housing policies practiced by the federal housing administration and veterans administration that gave whites the opportunity to own homes in neighborhoods where values were appreciating and denied uh, that opportunity to african americans <clears throat> well
0: this is you know, another part of the, the larger context that I think so many people are interested in understanding is that we still, to the point that you were making, we still are feeling the remnants of these, um, these policies. I'm going to, I want to go back um, though to this concept um, of private prejudice for a minute. And while I understand the very um, pertinent point that private prejudice may not be the Sole cause of residential segregation, and it's you know, but it certainly exists, particularly in the real estate industry. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. Like my husband and I are preparing to sell our home, and the first thing that we did was remove all of our family photos and any remnants of our family's blackness to proactively minimize buyer or agent bias, right? Recently, a family reported having their home significantly undervalued in the appraisal process because they were Black. They fought to get their home reappraised a second time within weeks and then asked a white friend to stand in as the owner, and their appraised value increased by half a million dollars. You know, are these incidences reflective of a larger systemic issue that, that we still need to be discussing? And... And how are practices like these contributing to the disparities or the wealth disparities for for black people?
1: Well, they certainly contribute. And uh, I want to emphasize that I am not saying that private prejudice doesn't exist. It certainly does. What I am saying to you is that uh, it is structured and required by public policy. And it's public policy – Prohibited that kind of private bigotry to be expressed, then people might secretly want to express it, but would not be able to do so yeah, so yeah. the um for example the the banking industry that um uh, uh, issues mortgages and uh assesses these appraisers and uh hires them to evaluate the value of a home before a mortgage is issued is one of the more heavily regulated industries in this country. And uh, if government were clamping down on this kind of discriminatory appraisal practice that banks that it regulates were using, it would cease to exist. It doesn't mean that the appraisers wouldn't be biased, but they wouldn't be permitted to express this bias In the real estate uh, transaction process, as you know, banks are heavily regulated by the Federal Reserve Board, by the controller of the currency, uh, most heavily regulated industries in the country. And they could not uh, support this kind of discriminatory policy if uh, regulators uh, didn't permit them to do so.
0: I'm going to kind of pull us, you know, also into the present day here. Um, because as you know and you have written about this many times the the lack of affordable housing affects many parts of the American society, but of course it has had a particularly um, you know devastating impact on on blacks and other minorities. What types of policies might help overcome this housing crisis and and as a part b of that, it's like do we need a new fair housing act?
1: Well let me say first that um Affordable housing is not a uh, problem that's unique to low-income families. We tend to think of African-Americans as being poor or low-income. A minority of African-Americans, less than 20% of African-American families are poor. Most are working class, most are middle class. And they can't afford housing either. In many of the um, hottest uh, markets in this country, we have... uh, teachers, uh, firefighters, construction workers, hotel and restaurant workers commuting hours each day to get to jobs in urban areas because housing is not affordable for them. So I want to first insist that when we talk about affordable housing, we're not talking about only housing for poor people.
0: Now, the best way... I could not agree (laughs) with that more. Yeah.
1: You know, African-American, middle-class African-Americans live in neighborhoods with higher poverty rates, much higher poverty rates than whites with identical incomes live in. So um, they are also being segregated, these families, and um, they can't afford housing in higher opportunity neighborhoods in part because they were prohibited by public policy from accumulating the wealth that they need for down payments or that they could inherit from their Uh, parents and grandparents for down payments. Now we certainly have policies that reinforce segregation today, but in terms of affordable housing, I place more emphasis on improving the incomes of um, African-Americans than on building more concentrated segregated apartment blocks that um, provide housing for people who are um, housing unstable. Uh, If African Americans had higher wages, if we uh, reinvigorated, reauthorized the organization of unions, if we uh, raised, as was being talked about substantially, uh, the minimum wage, that would make housing more affordable to African Americans in particular. Uh, without any housing policies having to change so um, I want to emphasize that to you affordability has two sides of it one is the cost of housing the other is the inadequate incomes of people who need housing and I'm talking about people who have jobs but when we have to subsidize their housing we're subsidizing their employers who are not paying a living wage to enable people to afford housing
0: well, that's, you know, I'm, let me, I, I want to kind of talk about that a little bit too, because. Here on one side, when we talk about the cost of housing and then, you know, the other side, we're talking about the wages that people are earning to allow them to afford housing. These things do, you know, you know, there's a correlation between them because mm-hmm. one of the things that continues to happen, especially, as you know, when we talk about gentrified communities and even in some of these areas where, again, uh, the people who are middle class can't afford to live in certain neighborhoods because the pricing of the housing is gone um so sky high you know there is a question of what do we do to focus on the cost side too and and should there be i, I remember uh, listening to you in um another interview and you you said something you said you probably shouldn't have said out loud but this concept of you know when do you when when is it you know or is it appropriate for people of color to finally get their opportunity to get their, you know, the 40 acres and the mule, the, their land or homes, um, even if we don't, again, because the government might be able to do something about that side of the equation, um, because even at $15 minimum wage, we know that, you know, that's a living wage in some places, but not all, right? Um, and so th- the question becomes, the government can help focus potentially on creating housing or um, equity and opportunity for housing, Uh, for for people of color who've been denied that in the past? And is that something that they should actually consider doing again?
1: Well, uh, let me say this. Uh, You know, the policies in all of these areas, resisting gentrification, affordable housing, uh, redressing segregation in all white communities or or mostly white communities, the policies are all well known. There's no mystery about what the policies are. The reason we don't do it is not because we don't know what to do. The reason we don't do it is because we don't have a new civil rights movement in this country that is demanding those policies and making it uncomfortable not to implement them. So the policies are well known. What's needed is a new civil rights movement uh, that's going to make it uncomfortable to maintain policies of segregation and not to redress them. I'm actually Mm -hmm. working with a group of... um, national civil rights leaders uh, fair housing leaders to create something we call a new movement to redress racial segregation we're going to be uh, giving support and organizational help to local committees of activists biracial black and white to uh, challenge uh, policies that perpetuate segregation and demand the implementation of policies that would redress it Uh, that uh uh, movement, New Movement to Redress Racial Segregation will be launched in a couple of months.
0: Uh, very. Uh, we would definitely appreciate, you know, continuing to be educated on, on the topic. There are always multiple sides, and we want to make sure that we are educated on on where everyone stands. Um, so we definitely appreciate the, the additional links. I want to ask you something, and we've covered this a little bit, but I want to expressly ask this question um, about, you know, we have recent studies and uh, recent studies and previous studies that show that black people are rejected for conventional mortgages, as you stated, um, at more than double the rate of whites. And additionally, white home ownership is almost double um, the rate of blacks. And, and you talk about this disparity um, and, and, and how we can address this. But in terms of the banking industry itself, how do we address it within within that industry?
1: Well, we've already talked about it a bit when we mm-hmm. talk about appraisal policies, but I'll give you another example, and I'm sure your your um your f- members are well aware of this, and that's the disparate impact that credit scoring policies have on African Americans. Uh, once you create a segregated system. You don't need race-specific policies to perpetuate and reinforce that uh, segregated system. Race-neutral policies that are race-neutral on their face can have a disparate impact and reinforce segregation. So, for example, if you're applying for a mortgage and you're a homeowner who's applying for a mortgage for a new home and you've paid your monthly mortgage payments on time, you get a good credit score for doing that and that uh, enables you to get a mortgage and even to get a mortgage at a more favorable rate. If you're a renter and you have paid your rent on time, you get no credit in your credit score for that um, regular rental payment. Uh, You don't get a boost in your score for that and it's harder for you to get a mortgage. Now, that's not a race-specific policy. But everybody knows, as you just said, African Americans are more likely to be renters than whites. Whites are more likely to be previous homeowners than African Americans. so if you have a credit score if you have a credit scoring system which gives you good credit for making monthly mortgage payments in previous homes that you've homes that you've owned and gives you no credit for making regular rental payments in houses where you've lived, that's a racially um, discriminatory policy in effect, even if the uh, authors of the policy claim they didn't intend to racially discriminate. So that's mm-hmm. one area that needs to be reformed, and it's an easy one to reform.
0: You you actually discussed something, um, and you mentioned it earlier in an, our conversation, that seems so foreign to me. Uh, and this is the idea and the concept of a pre-segregated America. Um, and in this America, uh, there were integrated communities where black and white people, uh, mostly working class and mostly due to the proximity of their jobs, they they lived together before the federal government came to their neighborhoods and forced uh, segregation. I'm just interested in what those neighborhoods might have been like um, back then and where do you think we would be today uh, if the government hadn't uh, forced this the segregation of these neighborhoods uh, on us?
1: We would have a much healthier society. Uh, as uh, you mentioned, uh, we had many more integrated neighborhoods and urban areas uh, in the mid-20th century, early 20th century than we have today. We have today. Uh, we'd be stunned if we would somehow transport it back to that period of time to see the extent of uh, integration that existed. I'm not uh, trying to paint a utopian picture. It's not that every okay. neighborhood was integrated. It's not that every other house in an integrated neighborhood was of a different race. But it was a, it was stunningly different from what it is today. Uh, the great African-American poet, novelist, playwright, Langston Hughes, uh, describes how he grew up in an integrated downtown Cleveland neighborhood. Not unusual at that time. As I say, not every neighborhood was that way, but many were because of the manufacturing economy and the need of black and white workers to live close enough to their places of work so they could walk or take short short streetcar rides. Langston Hughes describes how he grew up in one of those downtown Cleveland neighborhoods, not how we think of downtown Cleveland today as an integrated place. He said his best friend in high school was Polish. He said he dated a Jewish girl in high school. So you want to know what those neighborhoods were like? That's what integrated neighborhoods were like. This would not have been unique or uncommon. The Public Works Administration, the first New Deal agency to build public housing, the first public housing in this country, went into that neighborhood of Cleveland, demolished integrated housing, and created two separate projects. Public projects one for whites one for African Americans creating a pattern of segregation in that neighborhood uh, that hadn't previously existed Uh, in my book the color of law I like to describe where I can uh, self-satisfied smug places that think they're better than others Uh, one of them I talk about is Cambridge Massachusetts perhaps you're familiar with it Uh, the area between Harvard and MIT was a uh, integrated neighborhood Uh, Central Square neighborhood. Uh, uh, It was an integrated neighborhood, about half white and half black, in the 1930s. But the Public Works Administration went into that neighborhood and built two separate projects one for whites, one for African Americans, creating segregation in Cambridge, Massachusetts that hadn't previously existed and reinforcing it with other segregated projects elsewhere in the Boston metropolitan area that powerfully influenced the segregation of that community that we know today. So um, we did have uh, some integration in the mid early 20th century, much more than we have today and uh, the government played an important role in segregating those communities. I'll tell you an interesting anecdote, let me add this one more. The very first public housing in this country was built in the New Deal by the Roosevelt administration in an integrated Atlanta Georgia neighborhood. Now, Atlanta oh. was the deep south. It had segregated schools, had segregated lunch counters, it had segregated buses, but its neighborhoods had mixed in, mixed race, mixes of races, integrated neighborhoods because for the reason I talked about before, people had to live close enough to where they worked. The federal government went into that neighborhood, it was called the flats in Atlanta, Okay, demolished housing, and built a project for whites only, forcing the African Americans who lived in that part of the neighborhood to find less adequate housing elsewhere. <coughs> Excuse me, double, triple up with relatives in order to um, be housed. Wow, that is, that,
0: the, the intentionality me. of that is um, it's just mm-hmm. it's stark. Um, and, and let me ask you this, so. The civil rights movement happens. You know, we see the fight for equality start to this, – this push starts to happen, and integration starts to happen. Why didn't integration in housing take the way integration in other areas took?
1: Well, I, I think if you think about it, you'll realize um, that this is uh, easy to understand. If we pass an ordinance – prohibiting segregation in restaurants. The next day, anybody can go to any restaurant. It's not a big lift. It's easy to desegregate a restaurant. If we pass an ordinance desegregating buses, the next day, anybody can sit anywhere they want on a bus. Not difficult to do. But what if we pass an ordinance saying that segregation of neighborhoods is unlawful? Well, the next day, things wouldn't look much different. We can pass a law as we did in the Fair Housing Act, that prohibits future discrimination in the sale and rental of housing but that does nothing to undo the segregation that already exists and if we reinforce that segregation by creating a wealth gap between whites and african americans that denies african americans the ability to make down payments on homes in other neighborhoods for example we perpetuate that segregation if we um build low-income housing with a federal program called low-income housing tax credit that disproportionately places low-income housing tax credit units in already low-income neighborhoods, reinforcing their segregation. Uh, that makes it uh, even more difficult to uh, redress the segregation. Hmm. So it takes um, affirmative action programs in housing, not merely the, the prohibition of future discrimination in order to redress the segregation that we created in a way that segregating buses or lunch counters or other public facilities does not require.
0: Richard, you have, and I just, I feel, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this question and you've talked about this story, but I really am, I just would, I think our listeners would be interested in understanding this, um, that You know, you have taken issue with, you know, uh, some of the Supreme Court rulings, again, uh, related to uh, education, um, you know, in in terms of trying to integrate education and allowing black children or minority children opportunities Mm -hmm. to attend certain schools. And this is kind of one of the core things that led you down this path. And you also tell a story about this 1955 instance in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where a Black Navy War veteran bought a home in a white suburb. I'd like you to just tell us tell us and frame that story again um, for, for our listeners so that they can understand kind of the backdrop of how you started this research.
1: Yes, well, I, I'd be glad to. Uh, in 2007, not so long ago, the Supreme Court – prohibited Louisville, Kentucky, from um, implementing a very, very token school desegregation plan. The school district had um, implemented a plan uh, whereby uh, parents could choose which school in the district their child would attend, but if the choice was going to intensify segregation, it wouldn't be honored in favor of the choice of a Parent whose child wouldn't do so. So, you had an all white, and mostly white school, you had one place left, and both a black and a white child applied for that last remaining place, the um, uh, black child would be given some preference. It's a trivial, trivial program. You don't have one place left in the school very often, and you have to make that choice. But the Supreme Court in 2007 evaluated this program and prohibited it. The uh, controlling decision was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh, the Chief Justice wrote that that's true, that the schools in Louisville are segregated, but he said that they're segregated because the neighborhoods are segregated and the neighborhoods, he said, are segregated de facto, without government involvement, only because of people's choices to live with each other, the same race, and uh, private bigotry. And um, I read this decision uh, in which uh, the Chief Justice claimed that uh, Louisville was segregated de facto and I remembered reading about this incident that you just referred to where a white homeowner in an all-white suburb of Louisville called Shively a single-family homes one of those suburbs that I described to you earlier uh, a white homeowner had an African-American friend living in uh, urban Louisville renting an apartment, had a wife and a child. As you say, he was not only a Navy veteran, he was a decorated Navy veteran, wanted to move to a single-family home. Nobody would sell him one. So the white homeowner in this suburb of Shively bought a second home in his suburb and resold it to his African-American friend. It's the only way the African-American family could buy a home. And when the African-American family moved in, an angry white mob surrounded the home, protected by the police. And this is critical. Uh, the police protected the mob. The mob threw rocks through the windows. The police made no effort to stop it. Uh, they dynamited and firebombed the home. Police made no effort to stop it. But when the riot was all over, the state of Kentucky, arrested, tried, convicted, and jailed with a 15-year sentence. The white homeowner forced sedition for having sold a home to an African-American in a white neighborhood. And I said to myself, having uh, read this 2007 Supreme Court decision, that um, Chief Justice John Roberts' notion of de facto segregation in Louisville is utter nonsense. The racial boundaries of Louisville were at least in part maintained by state-sponsored violence. And I began to look into it further, and I found there were hundreds and hundreds of cases across this country, not just in border states like Louisville, but in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Denver and Chicago and Kansas City and Detroit and New York and Baltimore and Washington of state-sponsored violence. Police-protected mobs, sometimes even police-organized and led mobs to drive African Americans out of homes that they had legitimately purchased in white neighborhoods. Every one of these hundreds and hundreds of cases where the police were involved, either in protecting or in organizing or in leading this violence, was a constitutional violation, a violation of the 14th Amendment. The police are state actors. They represent the state. It's a civil rights violation, not de facto segregation. Every one of these hundreds and hundreds of cases requires us as American citizens to implement a remedy we've accepted that obligation in none of them and that's what got me looking into this I began to realize that it wasn't just uh, state-sponsored violence that was maintaining racial segregation but there were many many other federal state local policies and I described some of them to you earlier that created Absolutely. segregation that we know today de facto segregation is other nonsense
0: well you know, I, I'm listening to you. Um, I've heard you tell that that story before, and I've listened to it again. And I just can't. And the today's context help but draw the parallels to, you know, what we saw on on January sixth, um, and and some of the the continue um, violence and, and pushing that we've been seeing, um, you know, as of late. And and I just I I would hope you know as you're saying that it does make you really think about the fact that we we maybe haven't come as far you know um as we had thought and we certainly need to make sure that we're paying attention to to these policies our rhetoric the the things that are happening Um, in terms of legislation uh, at at all levels of government because you've been very clear about this not just being federal policies, it's state policies, it's local policies and laws that have contributed um, to the the continued oppression um, of a certain subsect of our population, Black people in in particular, uh, and and we need to be mindful and, and, and to think about how and what action we can take uh, collective action we can take to address these. I, I'm really uh, interested in understanding, um, Richard, why you've been, you know, you, you're writing on, uh, you know, the racial divide and housing is kind of your, your, your encore, right? You started really talking, as you said, about the racial divide and uh, inequities and opportunity in, in uh, education. But I'm very interested to understand why did you decide to become an ally and tackle topics about race, specifically pertaining to the inequities suffered by black people, in a fight that's not directly your own?
1: Well, that's not true. Um, I'm an American citizen. The Constitution imposes on me as well as on every American citizen to ensure that we have a democratic society one where um, civil rights violations are remedied. So to say that this fight is not my own is a very narrow way of thinking what my interests are. I have an interest in living in a democratic society, in a society where uh, my children and other children uh, are treated with respect and equality. And so this is not a black fight. This is a fight uh, that all Americans have an obligation to engage in if they take their constitutional obligations seriously. I will say, uh, in addition, that uh, segregation imposes great costs not only on African Americans, but on whites as well. The uh, segregation of this country, which leads to uh, enormous political polarization because African-Americans and whites live so far from each other has resulted in whites suffering enormously from inadequate public policies that are perpetuated by a politically polarized society. We have less adequate health care for all white and black in this country than other industrialized countries um, with even lower income levels than we have. We have uh, less adequate retirement uh, security in other industrialized countries for both African-Americans and whites because of the racial divide in this country uh, that we can't unify around common policies. We have less adequate job security, uh, less adequate uh, wages and benefits. So uh, it's not, this is not a, a black problem alone. Certainly blacks have suffered much much more than whites can even imagine suffering from segregation but every american citizen has an obligation to redress civil rights violations that were created by their government whether they were directly affected or not
0: richard I, I i am sitting here and i thank you and i appreciate your response to that question because not only is it narrow to think that this fight is not directly yours but it is a fallacy as you have so eloquently stated, this fight is everyone's fight. And as we know, an injustice against one of us is an injustice against all of us. I, I, now I'm just interested to know what else are you working on? Are you working on any new topics? What is next? What can we expect to uh, see from uh, Mr. Richard Rothstein in, in, the, in the near future?
1: <laughs> well, Mr. Rus- Richard Rothstein is an old man but I'm uh, trying to um, round things off <laughs> with two things. One is, I, I mentioned this earlier, I'm working with a group of national civil rights leaders to create a new movement to redress racial segregation. And I'm also writing a new book that will be a sequel to The Color of Law talking about what we can do about it, how we can uh, fix, how can we can redress the segregation that we've created. Not only what policies we should follow, but how we can create the biracial, multi-ethnic civil rights movement that can uh, make it uncomfortable not to redress racial segregation. So the book and the um, new movement to redress racial segregation and conversations like this one are keeping me busy enough. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and just if our listeners are interested in learning more about this topic, your work, or you, uh, how can they go about doing that?
1: Well, um, how do you uh, promote this? If I sent you some links, do you have a way of attaching them to the podcast?
0: Absolutely, we will attach them to the article that will accompany the podcast and okay, well, you know, whatever contact if if people want to get in contact with you or reach out, we can certainly facilitate that.
1: I will um I'll be glad to um provide that to you.
0: Richard, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Um I am excited to see your new projects and and to read your new book. I will be looking forward to that. Um, It definitely was a fascinating and and intellectually stimulating experience, and I'm sure that our listeners will um, and and have learned a lot from it. Uh, We thank you all for tuning in to Nareet's The REIT Report, and now we are signing off. So thanks again, Richard, for
1: joining us. Thank you very much.